a note to the hearer. Those who give careful reading to studies in the scriptures will discover the studies differ in several respects from many other religious periodicals. There is little in this publication that will appeal to the popular reader. If this magazine be read as a newspaper is read, little profit to the soul will be obtained. What we solicit from our subscribers is this. First, that before taking up any article herein, the reader will lift up his or her heart to God and earnestly ask Him for a spirit of discernment to recognize His truth and an open heart to receive it. Second, that to this end, the reader will study each article with an open Bible before him, turning to each passage quoted to see whether or not the writer proves what he says by a thus saith the Lord. And a third, that he reads slowly, critically and thoughtfully what is presented in these pages. God has said in his word, He that believeth shall not make haste. Isaiah 28.16 And if ever there was a time when his children needed to give special heed to this admonition, it is now. The children of God are infected with the spirit of the world. The mad rush which characterizes everything around us, the awful hustle and bustle of the ungodly as they rush headlong to eternal death, has affected the members of the household of faith, and few, if any of us, are free from it. One of our most urgent needs is to be delivered from this feverish spirit, for it is rapidly sapping the spiritual vitality of many of God's people. The irreverent speed at which the Holy Scriptures are read in the average pulpit, the rate at which sacred songs are commonly sung, the unholy manner in which many rush into the presence of the Most High God and gabble off the first words that come to their lips are so many examples of this infection. And alas, the same Spirit possesses most of us when we read the Word of God and expositions of that Word. We earnestly ask our readers to make a prayerful study of the words stand, sit, wait, tarry, as they are found in Holy Writ. The title of this magazine implies that it is designed not for lazy people or for those who are so busily occupied with the things of this world that they have no time, in reality no heart, for the things of God. No, it is published for the benefit of those who are or who wish to become students of Scripture. The articles herein call for study, thoughtful perusal, prolonged meditation. Finally, let not this magazine become a substitute for your own daily study of God's Word. Rather, let it be an incentive for further search on your part to discover the priceless treasures hidden therein. This is from the life of Arthur W. Pink by I. H. Murray, pages 23 and 24. 
Turning now to July 1932, Studies in the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures. John 5.39 Editor, Arthur W. Pink, 1886-1952 The eight studies in the contents are The Kingdom of Christ The Epistle to the Hebrews The Life of David Prayer Saving Faith Welcome Tidings It is Finished and A Prayer for Faith. Study number one, The Kingdom of Christ. Having seen that our Lord, after His resurrection, ascended to heaven and sat down on the right hand of God, let us now inquire into the nature of that kingdom which has been conferred upon Him. It is indeed deplorable that there should be such wide difference of opinion upon this subject, for the word of God is plain enough thereon. Such confusion as now exists among men only serves to demonstrate the awful depravity of our fallen nature and its tendency to pervert spiritual things. Into the controversies which have been waged upon the dispensational features of Christ's kingdom, we shall not now enter. Rather would we attempt to give a simple and constructive outline of the teaching of Scripture upon this important and most blessed theme. May it please the Holy Spirit to enlighten our mind, preserve from all error, and guide us to write only that which honors Emmanuel. It is important to clearly grasp the fact that the term kingdom, Basiliah, primarily has reference to sovereignty rather than territory. A king is a person who is advanced to the highest dignity, and his kingdom is that sphere where his authority is exercised. To illustrate, in times past, France was a kingdom. Today it is a republic. Yet there has been no territorial change. The country is still the same and is inhabited by the same race of people. But it is no more a kingdom, for the simple reason it no longer has a king ruling over it. Instead, it is governed by the public. They are sovereign. The kingdom of a king, then, is the sphere of his authoritative control, his sovereign dominion, with the necessary implication that his subjects respect his scepter and obey his rules. With this definition before us, let us look at some of the principal characteristics of the kingdom or rule of Christ. First, it is natural to him as a member of the Godhead. A. A. Hodge said, As the second person of the Trinity, equal in power and glory to the Eternal Father, the Word of God possesses an absolute, inherent, sovereign dominion as King over the whole universe. This authority is intrinsic, underived, unalienable. 
and is the same yesterday and today and forever. Unquote. Of each of the holy three can it be said, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. First Chronicles 29.11 And the Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Psalm 103.19 by virtue of the union of his humanity to his deity, Jesus Christ as man inherits the privileges of this natural kingdom. Second, it is delegated to him as the God-man mediator. Because he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth, the things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9-11 to by the name which is above every name, we are not to understand words or syllables, but dignity and glory. For names and titles express the quality of persons. This is clear from a parallel passage in Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, where principalities and powers and so forth are placed in the rank of names above which Christ was exalted. He has been elevated above all created dignities. When we say that the Mediator has received a kingdom from the Father, Daniel 7.13 and 14, and Luke 19.12, care must be duly taken not to conceive of this in the terms of an earthly monarch who, reigning over one kingdom by original right, acquires dominion over another by inheritance or conquest. A new kingdom in that sense was impossible, for as God the Son, the entire universe acknowledged his sway. No, rather are we to think of his original kingdom being invested with a new form, wearing a new aspect, administered, for a new end. From one angle, the mediatorial kingdom of Christ may be regarded as God's answer to the revolt of Satan and his organized efforts to blast his dominions. The great design of Christ's mediatorial regime is to glorify the Father in destroying the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 subjugating every foe, 1 Corinthians 15.24, and saving his elect from their sins, Matthew 1.21, bestowing eternal life upon them, John 17.2, and bringing many sons to glory, 
Hebrews 2.10 Considered from another angle, the mediatorial throne which Christ now occupies is the reward bestowed upon him for the humiliation and sufferings which he endured. As the majesty of the Son was for a time hidden from the eyes of his creatures, so now for a season the Father is pleased to veil his own glory by directing our more immediate attention to his Christ. This is brought out in those striking words of the Saviour's, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, the design of which is that all should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. John 5.22 and 23 The Father has appointed Christ to transact His business for Him. Luke 2.49 The Father does not Himself appear so much now in the government of the universe, desiring the Mediator to have that glory. Says he, Let my once humbled Son take it, I commit all judgment unto him. So too, the Father has made Christ, not himself, head over all to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Third, it is universal in its scope. As God-man mediator, Christ has been made governor of the universe. All power in heaven and in earth has been given to him. Matthew 28:18. He has been given power over all flesh. John 17:2. Therefore does he declare by me Kings reign, and princes decree justice. By me, princes rule, and nobles, and all the judges of the earth. Proverbs 8, 15, and 16. Therefore is he the prince of the kings of the earth. Revelation 1, 5. The king of kings and lord of lords. Revelation 19, 16. All the angels of God worship him. Hebrews 1, 6 and carry out his orders. Matthew twenty four thirty one. All the wheels of providence move at his bidding. There is not an event however great, nor a circumstance however trivial, but his power controls. Complete dominion over all the works of God's hands is now the Redeemer's. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty seven. What a blessed and glorious truth is this. The despised Jesus of Nazareth has been appointed heir of all things and is now upholding all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. A. A. Hodge said, A man sits upon the mediatorial throne of the universe. He who stood insulted, despised, condemned at Pilate's judgment seat, now sitting at the right hand of God, rules all worlds, as he will hereafter, seated on the great white throne, judge all men. The attributes 
of both the divine and human natures are together exercised in the administration of this kingly reign. All his kingly acts are infinitely wise, righteous, and powerful, because he is God. But they are, at the same time, the acts of man. They possess a truly human quality, for in all his administration he has a feeling for our infirmities as well as an eye for our interests. Unquote. The subjects of his kingdom are, first, his people. Therefore he is, in a special way, the king of saints, Revelation 15.3, for he has conquered them by the power of his grace, indwells them by his spirit, and writes his laws upon their hearts. Though by nature they are enemies to his government and unwilling to submit themselves to him, yet they are made willing in the day of his power, are pleased with his rule, and made partakers of the advantages thereof. Second, his enemies, these he also rules by setting bonds to their power and malice, and making even their wrath to praise him, though they imagine a vain thing by supposing their defiance of him is successful, he laughs at their folly, and in due time destroys all their projects. The day is coming when every foe shall be forced to bow down before him, as subdued by him, though not to him. Fourth, it is spiritual in its character. Plainly has he himself declared, My kingdom is not of this world, John 18.36. Great care needs to be taken by us lest we form carnal conceptions of the throne and reign of the Mediator. Christ is a spiritual king, for as the Lord from heaven, he has been made a quickening spirit. 1 Corinthians 15.45 His throne is a spiritual one. Revelation 3.21 His scepter is a scepter of righteousness, Hebrews 1.8. His subjects are subdued by spiritual means. He fights not with carnal weapons, but with the sword of the Spirit. The blessings which he bestows are spiritual, Ephesians 1.3. He dwells in the hearts of his people by faith, Ephesians 3.17. His kingdom consists not of meat and drink or such like carnal things, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 15.17 Fifth, it is restricted in its duration. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. 1 Corinthians 15.24 How like him, when he is in the height of his dominion, at the time of his full triumph, when every foe has been conquered, every rebel subdued, and when the glorified church has been presented without spot or wrinkle, then the Mediator gives up all things to the Father 
and, as mediator, become subject unto Him, that God, Father, Son, and Spirit, may be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15.28 Nor does this conflict at all with the words no end in Isaiah 9.7 and Luke 1.33. Just as Christ's priesthood is an unchangeable one, passing not from one to another as the ironical, so his kingdom will never give way to another, for he is an ever-living, everlasting king. Even on the new earth, the throne in it will be that of God and of the Lamb. Revelation 22, 1 Arthur Pink Study number two, the epistle to the Hebrews, the saving of the soul, Hebrews ten thirty five to thirty nine. As there is so much ground covered by the verses which are now to be before us, we shall dispense with our usual introductory paragraphs. In lieu of them we present a brief analysis of the present passage. Verse 35 really belongs to the section which we took up in our last article. In verses 32 to 35, the Apostle gives a persuasion on to perseverance in the Christian life. First, he bids the Hebrews call to remembrance what they had suffered for Christ's sake in days gone by. Then let them not now renounce their faith and thereby render void their early witness. Verses 32 and 33. Second, he reminded them of the ground on which they had willingly suffered hardships and losses, namely, because they had the inward assurance and evidence that in heaven they had a better and enduring substance. Then, inasmuch as it changed not, why should they? Verse 34. From these facts, the conclusion is drawn that a duty is rightly required from them, upon the performance of which the reward should be given them. Verse 35. In the last section of Hebrews 10, the Apostle first confirms the exhortation he had just insisted on and points to the chief aids to perseverance, namely, patience and faith. Verse 36. Second, he encourages the Lord's people by the prospect of the sure and speedy coming of the Redeemer, who would then reward them. Verse 37. Third, he warns again of the fearful state of the apostate. Verse 38. Fourth, he affirms that they who persevered to the end believe to the saving of the soul. Verse 39 The obvious design of these verses is to stir up Christians unto utmost earnestness in making their calling and election sure, to guard them against the danger of backsliding, and to bear their trials with submission to the will of God. May it please the Holy Spirit 
to apply this passage in power to the heart of both writer and hearer, that our meditation may issue in fruit to the glory of our blessed Lord. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Verse 35. Let us notice first the force of the therefore. This is an inference drawn from the foregoing. Since you have already suffered so many things in your persons and goods, and inasmuch as divine grace supported and carried you through with constancy and joy, do not be discouraged and give way to despair at the approach of similar trials. Further, this therefore is drawn from the blissful prospect which the sure promise of God holds before his faithful people and gives point to the admonition inasmuch as confidence persisted in is going to be richly repaid, cast it not away. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. The word confidence here has respect unto an attitude or state of heart Godwards. It is the same term in the Greek as is translated boldness in chapter 10, verse 19. It is found again in 1 John 3.21. Then have we confidence toward God. And chapter 5, verse 14. This is the confidence that we have in Him. It is not so much faith itself as one of the products or fruits thereof. It is closer akin to hope. It is that effect of faith which fits the Christian for freedom and readiness unto all his spiritual duties, notwithstanding difficulties and discouragements. It is that frame of spirit which carries us cheerfully through all those sufferings which a real profession of the gospel entails. More specifically, this confidence may be defined as fortitude of mind, courage of heart, and constancy of will. From what has just been said, it will be seen that we do not agree with those commentators who understand verse 35 as dehorting against the abandonment of Christianity. The Apostle's admonition here strikes deeper than a warning against forsaking the outward profession of the gospel. It is addressed against that state of heart, which, if it became chronic, would likely lead to the external forsaking of Christ. What is needed in the face of trials and persecution is boldness of mind, the heart being freed from bondage and fear through a prevailing persuasion of our acceptance with God in the performance of those duties which he has appointed us. It was this particular grace which was admired in Peter and John in Acts 4.13. It is only as the mind remains convinced of the righteousness of our cause and as the heart 
is assured we are doing that which is well-pleasing to God, that when we are criticized and condemned by men and are menaced by their frowns and threats, we shall be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.58 In nothing moved by our adversaries. This confidence in and toward God, which had hitherto sustained the persecuted Hebrews, they are here bidden to cast not away. Here again, the responsibility of the Christian is addressed. There are those who insist we can no more control our confidence, weaken or strengthen it, than we can control the wind. But this is to lose sight of the fact that we are moral creatures and accountable for the use or misuse of all our faculties. If I allow my mind to dwell upon the difficulties before me, the disadvantages I may suffer through faithfulness to Christ or listen to the whisperings of Satan as to how I can avoid trouble by little compromises, then my courage will soon wane and I shall be to blame. On the other hand, if I seek grace to dwell upon God's promises, realize it is an honor to suffer for Christ's sake and remind myself that whatever I lose here is not worthy to be compared with what I shall gain hereafter, then, assured that God is for me, I shall care not who be against me. To encourage the tempted Hebrews, the apostle at once added, which hath great recompense of reward. From these words, it is very evident that the true Christian may and should have his eye upon the reward that is promised those who suffer for the gospel's sake. Nor does this verse by any means stand alone. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Notice carefully the words, in heaven, which at once exposes the error of those who declare that the Sermon on the Mount belongs not to and is not about those who are members of the body of Christ, but is Jewish and millennial. Christians are not sufficiently occupied with their reward in heaven. The subject of rewards is too large a one for us to now canvas in detail, yet in view of present-day errors, something needs to be said thereon. Not a few suppose that the concepts presented by grace and reward are irreconcilably at variance. The trouble with such people is that Instead of searching the scriptures to discover how the Holy Spirit has used the term, they turn to a human dictionary. 
In human affairs, a reward commonly, though not always, denotes the recognition and recompensing of a meritorious performance, but not so is its general usage in Scripture. Take the first occurrence of the word. In Genesis 15.1, we find Jehovah saying unto Abraham, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. How utterly impossible for the patriarch to have done anything to deserve this. Once it is plainly perceived that in Scripture the term reward has in it no thought of a meet return for a meritorious performance. Much of the fog with which modern dispensationalists have surrounded the subject will be cleared away which hath great recompense of reward. Rightly did John Calvin point out in his comments on this verse, by mentioning reward, he diminishes nothing from the gratuitous promise of salvation. For the faithful know that their labor is not in vain in the Lord, in such a way that they still rest on God's mercy alone. But it has been often stated elsewhere how reward is not incompatible with the gratuitous imputation of righteousness. If those who suppose that Christians living since the days of J. N. Darby and Dr. Schofield appeared on the scene have much more light than they who preceded them, would only read the Reformers and the Puritans with an unprejudiced mind they would soon be obliged to revise their ideas. In many respects, we have gone backwards instead of forwards, and only too often the light which is in men is but darkness. And how great is that darkness? Matthew 6.23 So great that it closes their eyes against all true light. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Verse 36. The opening four intimates that the apostle is here confirming the exhortation which he had just insisted upon. John Brown said, The reward can be obtained only by holding fast this confidence, by adhering steadily and perseveringly to Christ and His cause. Unquote. Patience or endurance in the path of obedience, fidelity, and suffering is indispensably necessary if we are to be preserved unto salvation. Let those who will call this teaching legalistic. The only other alternative is lawlessness and licentiousness. Though it is not for, yet it is through faith and patience or perseverance that we inherit the promises. Hebrews 6.12 No one who is familiar with the writings of John Owen the Puritan, who proclaimed the free grace of God and the gratuitousness of his salvation in such certain terms, will accuse him of legality or of inculcating creature merits. 
Yet he, in his comments in Hebrews 10:35 and 36, wrote, Wherefore, the recompense of the reward here intended is the glory of heaven proposed as a crown unto them that overcome in their sufferings for the gospel. And the future glory which, as unto the, its original cause, is the fruit of the good pleasure and sovereign grace of God whose pleasure it is to give us the kingdom, and as unto its procuring cause is the sole purchase of the blood of Christ, who obtained for us eternal redemption. And it is on both accounts a free gift of God, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God through Christ is life eternal." so as it can be no way merited nor procured by ourselves by virtue of any proportion by the rules of justice between what we do or suffer and what is promised, is yet constantly promised to suffering believers under the name of a recompense or a reward. For it doth not become the greatness and goodness of God to call his own people unto sufferings for his name and unto his glory, and therein to the loss of their lives many times with all enjoyments here below, and not propose unto them nor provide for them that which shall be infinitely better than all that they so undergo. This confidence hath this recompense of reward, that is, It gives a right and title unto the future reward of glory. It hath in it the promise and constitution of God. Whoever abides in its exercise shall be no longer in the issue. For ye have need of patience. The apostle did not charge them with being destitute of this grace. For all who are born of the Spirit bear in some measure the fruit of the Spirit, and this among the rest. Galatians 5.22 Those who are brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ are into his patience also. Revelations 1.9 No, the apostles signified that they needed the exercise, continuance, and increase of this grace. Compare Zephaniah 2.3, where the meek are exhorted to seek meekness. That unto which the apostle would bestir these saints was, that they receive afflictions as from the hand of God, to bear reproaches and persecutions from men as that unto which he had appointed them. 1 Thessalonians 3.3, to commit their cause unto the Lord and rest in him. Psalm 37, 5 and 6, to bear up and not sink under trials and to live in the constant expectation of heaven. The Hebrew Christians, like we sometimes are, were tempted to become weary of well-doing. Numbers of their fellows who had once appeared to be zealous believers had apostatized, and the rest would soon be sorely tried. It was necessary then that they should arm their minds with the spirit of resignation and persevering constancy, 
that having done the will of God by steadfastly cleaving to Christ and obeying Him through all temptations and sufferings, they might afterwards receive the promised gift of eternal life. The principle of this verse remains unchanged. Satan is the same, and so also is the world. And they who will live godly cannot escape trials and tribulations, nor is it desirable that we should. Some of the finer and more delicate of the Christian graces can only be developed under stress and suffering. Then how much we need to pray for God to sanctify to our good each affliction which comes upon us, so that fruit may issue to His praise and that we may so conduct ourselves as to be encouragements to fellow pilgrims. The exercise of this grace of patience is to be continued until after ye have done the will of God. There is no dismission from the discharge of this duty while we are left here upon earth. While the more immediate reference is unto meekly bearing whatever the sovereign will of our all-wise and infinitely loving God has ordained for us, yet the act of walking in the way of God's commandments is also included, as is evident from the word done. The will of God, as it is made known in His word, is the alone rule by which we are to live and all our ways are to be conformed. That revealed will of God is not only to be believed and revered by us, but practiced as well. No situation in which we can be placed, no threatenings of men, however terrible, can ever justify us for disobeying God. True, there will be seasons of sore testing, times when it seems that our trials are more than flesh and blood can endure, and then it is that we must have need of patience, nor will divine succor and supernatural grace be withheld if we humbly and trustfully seek it that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Here the great recompense of reward of the previous verse is designated the promise, partly to guard against the error that eternal life can be earned or that heaven can be merited by creature performances, and partly to emphasize the certainty of that which is promised unto all who endure unto the end. The promise is here put for the things promised, as in 6.12 and 17, 11.13 and 39. It is called the promise, as in 1 John 2.25 and so forth, because it is the grand comprehensive promise, including all others, being the glorious consummation to which they point. Nor should any stumble because they cannot perceive the consistency of a thing being both a reward and a promise. We find the same conjunction of concepts in Colossians 3.24. Ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. 
It is so denominated to show that it is not merited by works, but is bestowed by free grace and will certainly be enjoyed by all the elect, and yet it will only be obtained by them as they persevere in the path of duty. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Verse 37. The casual for denotes that the apostle was about to confirm what he had just said. He both adds a word to strengthen their confidence and patience and also points them to the near approach of the time when they should receive their reward. The Greek is very expressive and emphatic. The apostle used a word which signifies a little while, and then for further emphasis added a particle, meaning very. And this he still further intensified by repeating it. Thus literally rendered, this clause reads, For yet a very, very little while, and he that shall come will come. John Calvin said, There is indeed nothing that avails more to sustain our minds should they at any time become faint than the hope of a speedy and near termination. As a general holds forth to his soldiers the prospect that the war will soon end, provided they hold out a little longer, so the apostle reminds us that the Lord will shortly come to deliver us from all evils, provided our minds faint not through want of firmness. And in order that this consolation might have more assurance and authority, he adduces the testimony of Habakkuk. But as he follows the Greek version, he departs somewhat from the words of the prophet. Unquote. Frequently does the Holy Spirit emphasize the exceeding comparative brevity of the saints' sufferings in this world. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, 
from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.